Our text is Isaiah 53. I'll talk about verse 10, but I'll read verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son, and we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and ears to see just how much your word uh, proclaims concerning your son. Uh, we thank you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In our text today, uh, it starts out with a sentence that I think some are tempted to overlook or misinterpret because it says something that just kind of goes against their understanding of what Christianity is all about. And the phrase is this first sentence in verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord. So I think some people try to minimize or, or entirely eliminate that word pleased, that they just don't really accept the fact that God the Father was pleased by what happened to Jesus. And yet, God derived pleasure from Christ being bruised. And when we say bruised, we know we're using euphemism. God the Father drew pleasure from Christ being scourged, humiliated, crucified. That's what the text says. And so we must understand. We, first, we must accept that that's what it says. And then we must understand why it says that. And there are people that misconstrue it. There is one man, I th his last name is Chalk. I think his first name is Steve. But uh, he commented on this, and he alluded to the Orthodox understanding of this and equated it to child abuse because the Orthodox understanding of this has been for a long time, at least hundreds and hundreds of years, penal substitutionary atonement. And it is interesting that it took centuries, really, for the church to come to that conclusion, that realization of exactly the nature of Christ's death and how it affects Christians. Isn't that odd? I mean, that's the heart of Christianity. And yet Christians argued about it for centuries. And yet the Orthodox view, that the, by far the prevailing view, is penal substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus was penalized in our place and atoned for our sins. And the way I understand atonement, too, it's, it's very easy from my simple perspective, at-one-ment. Atonement, if you just cut, carve out the words, it's at-one-ment, which means we are at peace with God the Father. We are at one with him. All that has separated us has been cast aside, has been put away. So now, I want to talk, though, about this man's accusation that people that hold to what we hold to basically are saying that God the Father is a child abuser. So first, I need to talk a little bit about that. What is child abuse? Well, the goal, and I want to talk about this briefly, but the goal of an abuser is pleasure, their own, at the expense of that, whom they're, the, that one whom they're abusing, and it is a perverse pleasure. 
We know that God has made us, God made all things good, and yet we, man, seek out many wicked inventions. So this is just yet another wicked invention. So now, what was God's goal then? What was in the Father's plan relative to the cross of Christ, what Christ went through as bringing him pleasure? So the fact is, it was not for his own pleasure. That was not the goal. Yes, God was pleased with what happened to Christ. But yet, it was the goal. What was the goal? The goal was not his pleasure. The goal was our salvation. The goal was rescuing mankind. So see, God accomplished that through this work, and that's why God is pleased with that. It doesn't have to do with some sick selfishness. It has to do with God's plan coming to fruition. And as I talk about this, it's just amazing how far it goes back. Note that it said that God bruised him, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. We know that's a euphemism. Where was it first used? Genesis 3.15. When God is speaking to the serpent, he says that you will bruise his heel. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that damage that Satan did to Christ. Yet it was foretold by God. It was God's plan. Right from that first act of disobedience, God claims it as his own. He claims it as part of his plan. Satan's rebellion, right at the point of the rebellion, and even as he's being cursed for it, God claims it as part of his sovereign plan. It's just remarkable. I don't know how people cannot understand that God is sovereign in the acts of men, but this points to it. So now, in the next sentence, it says, he has put him to grief. So when you say, when you grieve, is it your body? Is it, is it materialism? You know, we live at a time when most people, many people at least, deny anything other than materialism. And yet that isn't what grief corresponds to. Grief does not correspond to pain in your body. That's suffering. That's torment, yes. But grief pertains to your soul. So when it says that he put him to grief, it means that he tormented Christ's soul. Jesus was in torment, both physically and spiritually, emotionally, all across the board. His physical pain was real, but so was his spiritual torment. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't talking about his pain. He really didn't talk about his pain, did he? I mean, he wasn't a complainer. But yet he claimed in the, that phrase, that abandonment from his father. He was not a complainer, but yet he just poured out his soul on the cross to all of us to all of us forevermore to know and understand that he was abandoned on the cross. So, the next sentence says, when you make his soul an offering for sin. See, the previous sentence has, had ended on a period. He has put him to grief. Now we start a new sentence. When you make his soul an offering for sin. So it's God the Father, when you, that's speaking of God the Father, make his soul, Jesus, an offering for sin. And so here we have a clear, clear statement that Christ is being offered up. His death is an offering to God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin to be sin. 
not only to take sin upon him, not only to suffer the consequences of sin, but to be sin, that you might be the righteousness of God. And so we are substituted for, the righteousness is substituted for us. We are righteousness. Christ is sin. And so you can see how deeply this anchors us to the righteousness of God. We are righteousness. He is sin. It's not just speaking in terms of him taking it upon himself, but he's becoming it. And we are becoming it. We become righteous. In the Old Testament references, uh, what this reminds me of when you make his soul an offering for sin, do you remember this phrase? A food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Who hasn't read the Bible or listened to the Bible and heard that phrase oft repeated in Leviticus and Numbers? A food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Anytime the Old Testament speaks of a burnt offering, it almost always uses that phrase. And of course, the different versions have subtle different words, but yet it's the same. It's like 40, 50 times through those two books you hear it alone. And yet, the first time we hear that is where the first offering went up, and that's in Genesis 8. In Genesis 8, I'll read verses 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So at the start of 21, it says, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, then the Lord said in his heart. So see, it's God smelling that soothing aroma that causes him to make this statement that has prevailed from then until now and will prevail until the end of time. That is, that he will not destroy every living thing as I have done. So it's God's kindness to us. It's his love for us. And what is it that backs up that promise, that backs up that statement? It's the coming Messiah. It's the fact that this penal substitutionary atonement is going to one day occur. In the interim, there are these other pleasing aromas that God will smell. And at times, those are not so pleasing. You know, he calls them a stench in his nostrils because of their sinfulness. And now they're just going through the motions. But yet, when it was done right, when the people truly repented of their sins, this is what it was to him, a, a pleasing aroma. And yet, this pleasing aroma, I believe, foretells the fact that this is all Christ. It's all the pleasure that God the Father derives from the coming sacrifice of Christ. So every soothing aroma that you see referred to in the Old Testament is really God accepting that in the meantime, until Christ truly fulfills it in time. And then we end with the remainder of these sentences, and let me just sum it up by saying this. Well, actually, I want to cover one more point, actually, that's, that's quite remarkable. And it's uh, in the sentence, he shall see his seed. Right in the middle of verse 10, it says, he shall see his seed. Only five words. But to me, those five words imply two things that are just incredible. Very, very uh, incredible and awesome. First, he shall see his seed. When we're talking about he shall see his seed, we're talking about Christ. 
He is Christ. His seed is Christ. So he shall see his seed. This proves that Christ shall exist beyond this sacrifice that he is sharing in. And so it points to the resurrection very clearly, because even though it speaks of him being an offering, and offerings die, it speaks of his uh, having this uh, existence beyond the grave, beyond death. And the second part is he shall see his seed. Christ shall have offspring, even though just a couple of verses earlier in verse 8, it says, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And we know that he was cut off without earthly posterity. Yet he has a spiritual posterity. And Jesus has seen his seed, and he will see his seed cover the earth. Now, we end with these sentences. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God is one, and he acted as one in accomplishing his plan. And so any, any uh, argument that attempts to separate out God and the Spirit and the Son as having to do different things that are distasteful to them and that they would rather not do. No, no, no. You're striking at the unity of God. God the Father, yes, it was his plan, but God the Son and God the Spirit were totally with God in this. Christ knew that this sacrifice was coming. He didn't look forward to it. He tells us that in the garden. But he did look forward to it in the sense that he would then fulfill this purpose. And we all know that fulfilling purposes, accomplishing goals, is something that he's even given us pleasure in, right? Accomplishing goals is fun. Accomplishing goals is worthy. I always tell people when I'm talking about planning is when you get your planner, you make your little boxes and you write what you're going to get done. And when you get it done, you color in the little box and it gives you pleasure. We're all basically a little checkbox on God's list, right? We know that. We revel in that. It is to our joy and everlasting time with him in heaven that we're a little checkbox on God's plan. And he derives pleasure in all that he's accomplishing in that way. Now, death and suffering will one day be swallowed up in victory. And what I'm telling you is that in the garden, when God cursed Satan, and yet part of the plan was in that very cursing, what Satan would be allowed to do as part of God's plan, no. Everything that happens to you is also a part of his plan. There is nothing that happens to you that is outside of his plan. He has a purpose in it. You must realize that. You must embrace that. You must acknowledge it and thank God for it. Whatever it is, we know how hard it is. Some of the things we go through are very painful. And yet there is a purpose in it, and we know that. God is loving. He isn't in this for his own selfish pleasure, his own sadistic pleasure his own perverse desires. This is to fulfill his plan of redeeming us, and he will do so. So the victory that we celebrate today at the table is one that will be accomplished in time, and we praise God for it. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this plan that you have for us, for this earth, for all of your creation. Uh, we want to be uh, in line with you in it. Uh, we pray, Lord, uh, have us to First, understand who you are, what you have done, the, the uh, incredible depths to which you have gone and subjected your own Godhead uh, to save us. And so we thank you for this, Lord, and we want to live for you. We ask you to use these elements to make us uh, holy, 
to conform us to the image of your Son. And we give you thanks for him and for your plan and for the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.